You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are glad. I feel like we just saw each other. But uh, so let me take you back to a time before masks and pandemics and all that kind of stuff when life was normal. And my family and I went to the mall because I was looking for a new pair of shoes. And we walk in and my son, I didn't notice this when we left the house, but my son is carrying this backpack that he can barely manage. I mean, the back, it's, it's so full. And so he's walking around the mall and he's leaning forward a little bit as he's walking to compensate for all the weight in the, in the backpack that he's carrying. And, and I say, because typically he brings a backpack wherever he goes, and I'll say, like, why are you weighing yourself down with all this stuff that you bring? And I said, I'm telling you right now, I'm not getting stuck carrying your backpack full of nonsense. It's on you. And he's like, Dad, it's fine. I'll carry it. So we walk through the mall for a while, and he doesn't complain about it, never mentions it, which is, of course, due to my strategic parenting. And so we're walking the mall, and then we go to uh, California Pizza Kitchen, for lunch, and he opens the backpack, and he pulls out a dollhouse and dolls that he's been carrying around the entire time for his little sister, and he presents it all to her, like, there at the table, and now I'm Bruce Willis at the end of the movie, The Sixth Sense, when it's like, <gasps> now I'm seeing everything, like, oh no, what have I done, and so, I, I, and I say to Xander, I'm like, Zan, I'm an idiot, uh, I am so sorry, and you are a better man than I will ever be. And, and he says, well, Dad, number one, it's okay. And number two, don't say bad words, because idiot is a bad word. And uh, so I felt so bad. I took him to the Disney store and bought him a Kylo Ren helmet, and uh, just to ease my guilt. In fact, I felt so bad, I didn't even buy myself shoes, just because I felt like I had to punish myself for my bad behavior. And uh, I mean, I ordered them the next day on Amazon, because I'm not an animal. But I didn't upgrade the shipping, and that's the real moral of the story, because I felt like I needed two days to think about my mistake. And so, <laughs> but I'm telling you, and I, I, I've said this, I think my son is ready for mar- more ready for marriage than most dating couples that I know. Um, but here's the thing that you learn when, when you get married, is that you know, men and women are different. And I know that culture is trying to convince us otherwise. Culture is trying to convince us that men can be women and women can be men, and you can actually decide to be neither of those things. And it has created all kinds of confusion in the minds of people. And once again, and I'd say this, that we should have great compassion for people who are confused when it comes to uh, their gender identity. As Christians, there shouldn't be confusion. As Christians, we understand that God created men, God created women, and that doesn't mean that we hate people who disagree. It just means that we disagree. And the challenges is that our current culture believes that this idea of two genders, two genders with different roles and different responsibilities is absolutely archaic thinking. And sometimes being a Christian feels like we're carrying around the backpack full of stuff that's weighing us down, and they give us a hard time about. And yet, there's something beautiful that happens when we open up the backpack. Is that all, when, when we understand things as they actually are, and we open the backpack, there is all of this joy that 
takes place. And, and once again, um, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that uh, the very things that people want to push back on, uh, because as Christians, like, well, I don't understand why you would believe that, and if you believe that, you hate me, which, by the way, is just the sign of a weak argument. But once again, the things, when you open the backpack, there is this, uh, these things that bring wonderful clarity as God's design for men and women. Now, I'm going to tell you right now at the outset that I may step on a few toes this morning because we're delving into some sensitive topics uh, as we talk about the roles of men and women. Now, what I'm, about, what I'm about to share with you is not new. This has been the teaching of the New Testament and the teaching of the church for 2,000 years. But um, what I want you to think about as we get started, and this is really important, is that a lot of times people will reject a teaching not because they actually reject the teaching of the Bible, but they reject the, ap- the misapplication of what the Bible teaches because it has been leveraged in ungodly ways. And so when we talk about traditional marriage roles, people will object and say, I refuse to be a doormat to some man. And like, well, the question then becomes, is that your only option? Like it's doormat or nothing? Right? And, and by the way, this some man that we're talking about, is, is, is that your husband, the person who's supposed to love you most in the world and, is, and would willingly sacrifice for you and sacrifices what he wants for the sake uh, of you and the family? And see, what happens is, is that what too many people have seen is not the biblical representation of a sacrificial husband who puts aside his own desire to serve his wife and serve his children and that a wife simply responds to that love with trust. Instead, what we've seen, honestly, is a caricature. But the biblical model of home, and that's why when we talk about the text that we're going to talk about is talking about what's gonna, what happens in church, but yet it is a representation of what happens at home. And this is the thing that Paul's going to challenge us with today. And so what we're going to talk about is really we're going to kind of follow these two parallel lines. We're going to talk about the text where Paul says this is what's supposed to happen in church, but it really parallels what's supposed to happen at home and how the the way that there's supposed to be harmony at church is the way that there's supposed to be harmony at home. Now, if you're joining us and you've been with us or you haven't, we are in the 14th, if you can believe that, 14th message in a series in 1 Corinthians that we've been calling a beautiful mess. And uh, the Apostle Paul planted the church at Corinth. And if you're not aware, Corinth is a city in southern Greece. And the Apostle Paul spent a couple of years there, planted this church, turned it over to local leaders, and then went and started planting more churches uh, all over that, that region of the world. And then he got word that the church uh, was a total mess. There was infighting, division, people suing each other, people getting drunk during communion. We'll talk about that next time. And he wrote them this letter that we've been studying, and he's been encouraging them that a divided world needs a united church. And he tells them that the key to being a united church is having what he calls the mind of Christ. And that is thinking about things the way Jesus thinks, think, thinks about things. It's knowing what God wants us to do and speaking in a way that's consistent with the character and nature of God. Now, to give you kind of a little bit of a brief outline, of maybe an overview of the book, if you're not aware, the first six chapters of the book is Paul dealing with all of the problems, mostly the division that's happening in the church. Then in chapter seven, 
he says at the beginning, he says, now for the questions of which you wrote me about. And he spends the rest of the book answering questions that the Corinthian church apparently had written him a letter saying, hey, we have a bunch of questions about theology and practice and how do we handle certain things as Christians living in the world. And so in chapter seven, he talks about marriage and singleness and how that works in church. And then in chapter eight, through 10, he talks about dealing with disagreements with one another without vilifying the other. And sometimes what has to happen is those of us who, of us who feel a little bit freer have to curb our freedom for the sake of those who are easily offended. And then he says to those who are easily offended that they need to grow up in their faith because the fact that, the f- fact that they are easily offended shows that they're immature. But then in chapter 11, Paul changes gears. And he's going to talk about a very delicate topic of how uh, gender roles work within the context of church. And listen, we live in a culture that has literally lost its mind when it comes to gender. And so it is very important for us to know what we believe and why. And m- mind you, I, and I would say for the most part, we're here in church and we're going to be pretty much in agreement. But the, the, the reason why this is so important, whether you're married or not, is that you're going to walk out of these doors and you're going to go to work, you're going to go to hang out with, uh, at, at school, or you're going to go somewhere on vacation and be with your family or friends, and topics like this will come up and say, well, you know, you're a Christian, I can't believe you believe that. And once again, and it, it becomes the backpack thing all over again, and once again, you're going to be able to open the backpack and say, I want you to understand why we believe this. And here's the thing that's wonderful, is that when men and women embrace God's design for them, it brings clarity, it brings joy, and it brings peace. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 2 because we finished uh, our study last time in chapter 1. But here's what we read. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now if you pause there and give me your attention... Uh, first thing that I want you to note as we walk through this, and this is the first uh, fill-in, and that is that there is a difference between order and importance. There's a difference between order and importance. Now, I want to welcome you to one of the most politically incorrect sections of the Bible, and it might be the reason why some people that you know are not Christians. And this is why some people say, like, this is why I'm not a Christian. I refuse to believe that male chauvinism is acceptable. And listen, in that, we're in agreement. Male chauvinism is not just, uh, it's not only unacceptable, it's idiotic and it's unbiblical. Um, but like most things, that, most things that people say they have a problem when it comes to the Bible, it's usually they don't understand what the Bible is actually saying. Paul isn't saying who's more important, men or women. Because by the way, if, if you're taking that to mean that men are more important than women, then you're also that same text is telling you that God the Father is of greater importance than God the Son. And I think you're going to be on very weird theological grounds to come to that understanding. No, but what happened was, although there was equality between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, Jesus, willingly submitted himself to the Father so that he could model what the Father is like to us and sacrifice himself, die for us, so that we might experience forgiveness. So let's start here. Um, This is not a conversation about worth. Woman was created out of the side of man so that she could stand next to man as an equal. But someone has to ultimately be responsible. 
And this is the issue that we're talking about. And once again, you might disagree with that, and you're welcome to disagree, but feel free not to email me your thoughts on the subject, because your argument is not with me. Your argument is with God, and I would encourage you to email him, all right? So um, (laughs) here's the other thing. Paul is not saying that all men are the head of all women. He's speaking of of married couples in a covenant relationship. How do I know? Because in another letter that Paul wrote, he actually goes into this topic in much greater detail. And before he, in that letter, and we're going to look at this uh, for a little bit in our first point, is uh, in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, when he begins to talk about marriage, here's how he sets up what, every ad- what the attitude should be of every husband toward his wife and every wife toward her husband. He says this in Ephesians 5.21. He says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's how this starts. We submit to one another in the fear of God. This is how it works in marriage, that happy couples, and if you want to be one of those, here's what happy couples do. They put the other person first. It's almost a competition to see who can get to the back of the line and outserve the other. Now, submitting to one another looks different because men and women are different and men and women are wired differently. So I'm going to read you the whole passage, and uh, this is usually the passage that some people don't like, but you know what you're going to find when you read this and really understand it? It's really quite beautiful. And it creates this wonderful harmony of how men and women are wired. And so, well, let me just read it to you and you'll know what I mean. Here we go. Verse 22. So submitting to one another in the fear of God. Then he says this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her, him, uh, present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, there should be, that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, here's the problem with this conversation and why so many couples struggle. Traditionally in church, and let's not say that this is what culture has said. This, let me tell you what traditionally has happened in church. Traditionally in church, women are told to submit to their husbands and husbands do whatever you want. That is lunacy. And it is not what the Bible teaches about marriage. Verse 21 outlines the passage. Both men and women are to mutually submit to each other out of reverence for God. But the rest of the chapter teaches us what that submission looks like. It talks to wives about trusting their husbands, and it calls husbands to love and sacrifice. And it is literally the opposite of what people think the passage is saying. And because they don't read the Bible in context, they just kind of make assumptions. They think that it is basically like, this scene that I saw at my house years ago when my son Xander was about two and my daughter Mia was five, Mia wanted to play with her little brother. And Xander was not interested and wanted to go to the living room. They were in the hallway, uh, kind of the hallway in her old house. And Mia, refusing to take no for an answer, starts pushing Xander into her room. Now, I'm sitting at, at the dining room table doing some work and I poke my head out to look and I see Mia just pushing, I mean, like an offensive lineman, 
pushing her brother into her room. And, and my son, with all of his might, trying to hold on to furniture to keep it from happening. And so, and I asked what's going on. And she says, I want Xander to play with me. And I'm like, Mia, don't push him, lead him. Like say, hey, you want to play? I've, I've, let's do this. I've got, let's play this in my room. And she says, okay, I get it. So a few minutes later, I hear Xander making like, you know, noises, uh, you know, like, ah, you know, just, I pop my head out again and Mia has taken a belt. She has tied Xander. He's on the ground and she's dragging him down the hall into her room. And I said, Mia, what are you doing? She's like, dad, I tried your way. This works better. And now, when someone hears the word submission, this is what they think. Someone being dragged against their will. Submission at, is simply putting the other person first. And that is how it works when two Christian people marry one another. They are, they are commanded to put the other person first. Now, how that looks is different because men and women are wired differently because everything that we're commanded to do is supposed to bring us back to Jesus. If you were with us last week on Father's Day, we ended the message and talked about it. In chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And then he goes on to talk about this. Now, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, when he talks about marriage, you know what he says in chapter 5, verse 1? He says this. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for him. So everything that we do in submission to one another is modeled after Jesus. And th this is the point, is that we're not told to walk in love in some kind of random way. We're told to walk in love the way Jesus modeled love for us. That's why the command is the same. Submit to one another out of reverence for God. But the application of that is different. So, you know, did you know, if you read that passage, isn't it interesting that the wife isn't commanded to love her husband? She's commanded to trust him. And, and, and this is why it kind of, and this is why it rubs people the wrong way is because, once again, we live in a culture where we champion the cause of, of uh, men and women being equal and anything that sounds like uh, women taking a backseat to men just doesn't sit well with us culturally. And by the way, can, let me just share something with you that I think is important. Women's equality is a reality because of Christianity. Women had no standing culturally before Jesus came on the scene. Jesus came on the scene and he allowed women to be his disciples, which was completely unheard of. He allowed uh, women to partake and be part of his ministry. Uh, the, the New Testament was the first document of antiquity to ever talk about and expound on the idea that men and women were equal in the sight of God. So for somehow now 2021 culture to tell us that Christianity somehow subjugates women is literally comical at best and demonic at worst. Now, the issue at hand is how are we called to submit to one another in reverence for God? Once again, it's what both men and women are called to do. Wives are called to trust and respect. Once again, which by the way is how men are wired. That's how men actually receive and understand love. This plays out with a wife allowing her husband to lead the family. And you know what he how he responds? By sacrificially loving her by crucifying his own desires for her. That's the husband's call, is to sacrificially love his wife. And I love that Paul gives us the command and then he illustrates it for us. How are, we, how are husbands supposed to love? Like Jesus. 
because just like Christ sacrificed himself for the church, giving our lives for our spouse. And by the way, guys, that means a lot more than just protection and defending our family. It means crucifying our own desires for the sake of our spouse. Now, unless you tell me that you are married to the daughter of Satan and, uh, and say, well, I don't think he's his daughter, but maybe his cousin. Uh, well, unless you're married to the daughter of Satan, who's just not interested at all in following Jesus, listen, your wife will respond to sacrificial love. Your wife will respond to sacrificial love. And because God knows that men are a little slow, he gives, did you notice that it's very simple? Like um, the, the, the command for, it's like two verses for women, and then it's like five verses for men. You ever notice that? It's, it's very interesting to me that it's like, hey, ladies, here's the situation. Guys, here's the situation. Let me illustrate it. Let me tell you a story. Let me draw you a picture. Let's do connect the dots. See how that looks. Can you count? Let's see, you know. And so, and he says that here's what it looks like. That loving your wife is like loving your own body. And think about the ways that you love your body. And don't start singing Ed Sheeran songs to me. Um, Now, um, you buy yourself clothes that make you look the best. You buy yourself presents, guys, just because, just because I love you, right? And you've been working hard and I just got myself this. You know, you pick out only your favorite foods to eat just to make you happy. And, and God is like, you know how you're always on your mind and you're always thinking about ways to make your life better for yourself? Well, yeah, Lord, I understand that very well. Yeah, do that for your wife. That's what that looks like. And listen, happy couples. I mean like really happy couples. Couples that are having so much uh, joy and, in, the, in their marriage that are like, is this even legal? Uh, that, that, those kind of couples, they are mutually submitting to one another. She trusts him to do what's right for the family, and he proves day in and day out that her trust is not unfounded on him. Well, it goes on, and I wish it was as simple as that, but it's more problematic. So look what happens in verse 4. He says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn or her head shaved. But it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered for a woman, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he has the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman for man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to talk about that's important for us is that there is a difference between a custom and a principle. There's a difference between a custom and a principle. Now, this is a local issue that was happening in Corinth because people, and by the way, I want you to notice that he talks about both men and women praying or giving prophecy in the services. Now, if you're like, well, what's up with prophecy? We're getting there. Chapters 12 and 14, we're going to talk about that uh, in depth. 
But he's talking about women who pray or give prophecy in the church service. Now, this is very strange for us because we are 2,000 years removed and half a world away to understand what happened. In that culture, men did not wear head coverings uh, and because they did not wear a head covering, it showed that they were the responsible party for their family. Women did wear a, a head. Co- women did wear a head covering in uh, some of the Roman world, and if a man wore a head covering, it was a sign that he was abdicating responsibility for his family. Now, this was a big deal. Now, here's the thing you have to understand: it's a cultural issue because in the Jewish culture, it was the exact opposite. Men wear a head covering that's called a yarmulke, and it shows his submission to God. A woman does not wear a head covering. And a Jewish man wears the head covering out of his submission to God. In a Greek culture, it was flipped. And what Paul is telling them to do is to recognize the culture around them. Now, once again, we live, we're 2,000 years removed and a half a world away. But we have our own customs, right? If you're married, more than likely you wear a wedding ring. Now, there's nothing in the Bible about wearing a wedding ring on your, the fourth finger of your left hand. But in our culture, we understand if you wear a wedding ring on the fourth finger of your left hand, it means that you belong to someone else, that you have made a covenant with another person. Now you can wear rings. You could wear multiple rings on every other finger and on all your toes if you want to do that too. But only A ring on the fourth finger of your left hand communicates a specific message. Isn't that fascinating? Now, here's the thing. What if someone you knew wore their wedding ring except when they went out with their friends? Like, hey, I'm going to go out with my friends, so um, I'm going to leave this at home, and then I'll be back. Like, what, what you would say, no. What does that mean? Well, you would say, well, that sounds kind of fishy. Why does he not want to wear that symbol, that, that it, it, it's, it's almost like he doesn't want people to know. Once again, because culturally we have an understanding of what wearing a ring means and we also have an understanding of why many people would want to take off the ring and taking, the act of taking off the ring would be dishonoring to his or her spouse. This is exactly what's being spoken here. It looks different because we're 2,000 years removed and half a world away, but it's a similar principle. In Corinth, there, and we talked about this, if you've been with us, that in, there was, it was a wild culture and there were all of these temples to all of these gods and every night thousands of temple prostitutes would go into the city looking to drum up business for their god or goddess. And in those temples, the prostitutes that were there would shave their heads and would not wear a head covering, symbolizing that they were available. And so Paul is telling the Christians that, listen, you got to look a little bit different than those who were involved in these pagan practices. And now these are always difficult topics to discuss. And I remember when I was in college, one of my professors told the story about him preaching at a church and the pastor had asked him to preach on this, you know, gender roles and all that, which by the way, I've never been asked that in another church. I think I'd probably say no, like, listen, dude, you take the arrows yourself. Um, and so, but, uh, so, but he did, he went and talked, they talked about gender roles and women trusting their husbands, husbands sacrificing for their, for their wives. And after the service, this woman shows up, she's wearing this giant hat, he says, and uh, comes up and says, pastor, after hearing that message, if you were my husband, I would poison your coffee. And he said, madam, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. Um, <laughs> 
trolling level 100 for that guy. Amazing. So, <laughs> but now when he, that, what he's talking about here when he says, uh, when he talks about the order of creation, he says that woman being created for man, he's talking about the creation story, that everything in creation was good except the creation of man, that it was not good. Everything is good. And if you read Genesis chapter uh, 1, one of the things, that you, Genesis 1 and 2, what you'll find is a rhythm. And it's created in a, it's written in a poetic form so that those who heard it could memorize it because not everybody had a Bible that they could carry around and they certainly didn't have a phone, an app on their phone. So it was done so that there would be this rhythm and God created and it was good and God created and it was good. God created and it was good. And the evening and morning was the first day and evening and morning was the second day. And then he says, and then God said, it is not good. And what ha- it's like, you know, it's, something is wrong. And, and it, the, it's making a point that it's not good for man to be alone. And so what we learned then is that God creates the woman and that together they reflect the image of God because they're both created in God's image. And so that's why in verses 11 and 12, he says that man is not independent of woman and woman is not independent of man that the first woman came out of the man and now every other man in human history comes from woman in, 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 in childbirth. And so, but he says that they're not independent of each other, but God uses us as equals to complement one another. But see, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that one sex is greater than the others. We, we have uh, different roles, responsibilities, and functions, but we are equal. Men and women are equal. Now, I used to run a college before coming and starting Cal- Calvary. I spent almost five years running college. It was great. It was great. And um, now, I was the director of the college. I had a staff that was uh, working for me. And, uh, but when I was leaving, I did some. When I was coming to start Calvary, so I was the director. I had an assistant director and, a, and a, some other people that were there. And, but I, we had brought on this assistant director because he was ultimately going to take over the school. And so when we were close to leaving, I said, look, we're going to make you the director. I'll become the assistant director. We're going to put you in charge because I'm, um, you're going to be taking this and I'm going to be leaving. And I, now I knew that that was the right thing to do, but like I had been running the school for almost five years. And so now I'm going to make him the boss to run everything that I had kind of set up. And then, and, and, and you know, and uh, I had no idea how it was going to work. And it was the greatest thing ever. Because before the change, I was the guy who was working late. I was the guy stressing out over decisions because I was the person in charge. I was the one who had been given the responsibility. And if something went wrong, no matter what, I was responsible. But after we made the switch, he was in charge. And it was totally freeing. And I had no idea that it would. Um, and so he was in charge. And I, now you're the boss. I'm submitting to you and what you want me to do. But here's the thing that was amazing. There was no pressure. And one evening, I remembered this, I was leaving, and he was stressing out over all the stuff that I would stress out over, semesters are starting and all that. And, and he looked at me with this face like, what in the world did I get myself into? And I smiled, being the compassionate person that I am. And I'm like, peace out, I'm out of here. And, uh, and, and listen, and, and so let me, let me tell you something that I, that I think is really important. If I can talk to the wives for a minute. I see so many Christian women, wives, stressing out, trying to make ends meet, working like crazy, trying to run everything. And here's why, because I have just, I've observed this in my life, that wives and moms have an incredible sense of responsibility. 
And here's what happens, is that when mom is literally losing her mind trying to make everything happen, a lot of times a Christian, a, a, a husband will look on and look at his wife all stressed out and freaking out and be like, well, I guess she's got it covered. I'm going to go play this new video game I just bought. And now listen, Christian woman, listen to me. If God has given him the responsibility, don't take it from him. And this is why, and, and listen, I think that some of this, under, there, there's an underlying issue where some wives just don't trust their husbands and uh, because he's sitting around while you're working hard outside the home and inside the home. Can I lovingly challenge you on something? Um, that it could be that part of the reason that you're working so hard is because you don't trust him. But listen, he will not become the man that God wants him to be. He will not become the man that you need him to be if you're doing everything because he is going to feel like you've got everything covered. So what, what, is, what does a Christian wife do? Look, can I encourage you in this? Let him fail. You're spinning all these plates. Here's what I would say. Let the plates fall. Allow him to bear the responsibility that he has been entrusted to carry and let him be the man God has created him to be. And listen, he will never get there if we're doing everything we can to shield him from the responsibility that he has. And listen, and you know what you will experience? Freedom. And listen, and that, sound, that might sound scary as anything, but I'm telling you, when a man embraces what God has created him to do, um, to, to lead his family and do whatever it takes to sacrifice what he wants for his family, you will find incredible freedom in that. Ask happy couples and they'll tell you. All right, last thing and then we're done. Verse 13, he says, judge among yourselves if, if it, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? This is kind of going back to that cultural thing. Uh, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Last thing I want to tell you is that there is a difference between freedom and disorder. Now, the point that Paul is making, and he's reiterating that what should be done in that culture. Now, this church had lots of problems. And Paul ends this section in verse 16 that he says, if anyone wants to be contentious, I want you to understand we don't experience that in other churches. And what he's saying is, is that all these other churches, they have learned how to act like grownups. Now, this is why understanding the context is so vital to what the Bible teaches, like the long hair thing. And once again, when I, was, when I had become a Christian, that was kind of a thing, like in the 80s and 90s, like can men have long hair? And they were looking at this and went, like, oh, see, that's what he says. He says they can't have long hair. And yet they never understood that in the Jewish culture, men weren't allowed to cut the four corners of their head. Like they had to, they had to let their hair grow. And that's why if you see um, Hasidic Jews or Orthodox Jews, they have uh, these long braids because they have to let their hair grow because of a, a command that's given out in Numbers chapter 15. And so, but this issue is what was happening culturally. He says men shouldn't have long hair because of a cultural issue that men in that time were doing manual labor and long hair would get in the way uh, of men doing this kind of labor. And that was long before the invention of the man bun. And so, and so now, and I find comfort in knowing that the Apostle Paul did not have a man bun. And uh, now you might say, well, that's just because you're jealous. 
and you are envious. Well, maybe. Okay, fine, probably. But now, here's the point of this challenging passage that I believe is, is really the thing that God wants us to embrace. Um, too many times when we talk about the idea of freedom, we believe that freedom means no rules. Freedom means I'm casting off all restraint. I have no limitations. That's not freedom. That's anarchy. And there's a difference between freedom from anarchy and freedom to. You see, freedom from is I'll do what I want and I want no consequences. The problem is what happens when I do what I want, but the thing that I'm embracing is bad. No, freedom is not rejecting all restraint. It's embracing the right restraint. Now, I've been playing guitar uh, for, I, I guess, about 30 years now. I've studied music theory and played in bands, and I, I had a record deal. We put out a couple of albums and all that. And so because I have practiced so much in my life, I can play guitar with an incredible amount of freedom. And that is, I can walk around my house playing guitar, I can close my eyes playing guitar, I can, I can do all kinds of things. It's like, hey, play something, and I just create something right on the spot. But see, it's because I understand what the restraints are that I have incredible freedom. But if, if I just say, I'm going to throw off all restraints, I can play whatever note I want. You know what it's called when you play whatever note you want? Horrible. But it's just the markings of a beginner. Like, like, no, nobody wants to hear that, right? That just sounds like someone fell down, like when they were holding a guitar. Like, what happened there? You see? Um, but instead, when you embrace the right restraint, it brings freedom. Now, you know what's interesting is that a couple of years ago, uh, I started playing piano. I took up the piano. I'm nowhere near as good as Raul is, He's, who's a fantastic uh, pianist. Um, but I don't play. You're welcome. Just... Trying to give you some props. Isn't he great? He's doing so well. All the other guys that play piano are like, I didn't know you were going to say something nice. I would have played. But no, but you played, and we thank you for that. So anyway, you're going to have to start playing here in a second. Uh, <laughs> so here's what happens is that now I, I play a little bit of piano, but I don't, play, I, I don't play a lot. I'm nowhere near as good as I am playing guitar or bass. But I have such a limited playlist in fact, I would say I have very little freedom uh, on, on piano. In fact, when people, like, uh, when we go to our couples retreat, if you come with us, and you should, and if you listen to this message, and you're like, I'm so angry right now, it's probably because you need to sign up for a retreat. Um, or if you're like, I really like this, but ain't, that ain't how my house works, and you need to sign up for the retreat. And if you're like, this is exactly what it's like, you still need to sign up for the retreat, because everybody needs to sign up for the retreat. And you're like, I'm not even married. Well, you got like three months. Make something happen. So... Anyway, so here's what happens is that um, I was at, at the retreat. We were setting everything up, and they have this grand piano in the, uh, the big foyer area. And so I walk up to the piano, and now, if it was a guitar, I mean, like, I mean, I, oh gosh, I knew hundreds of songs on, on guitar. But when I get to the piano, it's like I got to play something, and I don't want to sound like a moron. So, uh, and, and, and so my go-to song is Let It Be by the Beatles. Now, here's why. Now, not just because I love, now, I tell people I just love Let It now, Let It Be is not my favorite song by the piano, but you know the thing I love about Let It Be is that when I find myself in times of trouble, 
Mother Mary comes. So it's like I can go like one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. That's why I love Let It Be is because I can think about it like when I find myself. Where's F? And uh, okay, there it is. A minor. There it is. And uh, that's why. And so listen. So even though so this is the point is that because I have limited freedom, there's less joy. But see, it's in playing the right notes and embracing the melody, embracing the right restraints, that there is so much joy in playing. And what comes out is so much better. You see, when you embrace how God has created men and women, and we just embrace the responsibilities that he's given to each of us, you know what you're going to find? Joy. It is a freedom in a joy that our culture is incapable of finding because they have decided that destroying everything is the only way to be free. And this freedom from doesn't work. It's freedom to. And you know what? They, they've decided freedom from and they've blown everything up. And you know what the sad part is? They still aren't happy. But listen, the joy that you're looking for isn't found in just nuking everything. It's found in a freedom for embracing how God has created us. Bring sacrificial toward our spouse, denying ourselves. That's where all the joy is found. Mutual submission. Sacrificing for our spouse. Both husbands and wives submitting to Jesus and honoring our spouse is where all the joy is. But here's how we get there. Someone has to go first. And someone has to go first to make the decision that they're going to be last. Because that's what happiness in marriage becomes, right? That's where the joy is, is getting to the back of the line. And some of us are thinking, well, that sounds miserable. And I just don't want to be someone's doormat. And I don't want someone to take advantage. And that's why so few people try it. And that's why so many couples have so many deep-rooted problems. It's impossible to be married, happily married when you're looking for your spouse to be your emotional Messiah. Like, I, no, 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 I'm in this and you're going to give me everything that I need. You're going to be the savior that's supposed to make me happy. That's not how it works. And then when your spouse can't bring you the happiness that you want and they fail as your Messiah, you know what you'll end up doing? You'll end up crucifying them. Listen. Marriage never works when I leverage my spouse for my benefit. Jesus modeled something different. He leveraged who he was for our benefit, and that is the only way that marriage works. And I know that sounds completely countercultural and counterintuitive, but trust me, if you want more joy than you think should legally be allowed in your marriage, then try it. And that's why the Bible calls marriage. That's that the end of that section in, first, uh, in uh, Ephesians 5, he says this, marriage is... A mystery because we're called to do something that doesn't make sense and the end result is a supernatural joy let's pray together and Lord we want to thank you for that we thank you that we can trust you even if it doesn't make sense and that you will produce the thing that we've been looking for this whole time we thank you for that we thank you for your great love for us and that you haven't left us alone to try to figure it out, but instead you mapped it out for us. That even when culture says otherwise, you're the designer, the creator, and God, you love us and want us to have joy. And we prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. 
Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.